So for the last few weeks, we've been in the midst of this series of messages called Pack Your Bags. And the idea behind the entire series has been that we just want to prepare for what's next. And so in the midst of this series, we've talked about how to prepare for what's next. Now, we all have a next in life. For some of us, it's a new stage in a relationship. It's a, it's a wedding. It's a child's wedding. It's a, uh, a new baby that's on the way. It's a grandchild that's on the way. We all have a what's next in life. Maybe it's a transition in career. Maybe it's a transition in schooling. Maybe it's something that's a couple of years away, but we know it's coming. And so we've talked for the month of January about how to prepare for what's next. We've also talked each week about the reality that there's no correlation between knowing what's next and being prepared for what's next. Just because you know what's coming does not mean that you are prepared for what's coming. And so each week we've talked about some ways that we can prepare ourselves. I was thinking this week about those things in my life that I knew were coming, but I was not prepared for, and nothing rivals being a parent, like your first child, people tell you, oh, it'll change your life. And you're like, oh, I know that I've got it. Like I've read the books, what to expect when you're expecting and what's going to happen the first year and the dad's God to being a dad. And like, I've got all the reading done. I've researched it. I know. But then the moment happens and that nurse takes that first child and hands it to you as a dad, you quickly realize I have no clue what I am doing at all. And I have thought that. For the last 15 years, almost every day of my life. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord? Right? Now you think, oh, I know what's coming. And so in parenting, it's not even just having the child. It's the next stage of the child. Like, oh, the terrible twos. Oh, yeah, that's for everybody else. Well, for me, the threes were worse than the twos. Well, there's no way they can, oh, they're worse than the twos. All right. Like every stage, elementary school, teenager, like every stage, you're like, well, I know what's coming, but that doesn't mean you're prepared. Well, the good news that we've talked about over the last few weeks, not only can we in some ways prepare for what's next, even if we know what it is, you can actually prepare for what's next, even if you don't know what's next. That many things that happen in our lives come at us when we least expect it, when we're not aware of it. And you can prepare for what's next without knowing what it is. And so over the last few weeks, we've talked about some ways to prepare for what's next, whatever it may be for your life. The first week we talked about the fact that if we want to prepare for what's next, we need to be obedient to what God has called us to do now. We need to do what God's called us to do now, because if we don't do now what God's called us to do, we probably won't do then what God's called us to do. That the best preparation for obedience and living for God in the future is obedience and living for God now. And so if you're a teenager, living for God in high school is the best preparation for living for God in college. If you're a college student, living for God in college is the best preparation for living for God when you get out of college. If you're a young adult without kids, the best preparation for living for God when you have kids is living for God now. Doing what God says now. The second week we talked about the fact that when Jesus was preparing people for the ultimate next, he said the best way to prepare for what's next is to be prepared. And the best way to be prepared is to pray. And so we talked about the need to pray for 
The ability to make it through, to stand up in the midst of whatever's next, and to be faithful in the midst of it. And then last week, we talked about that in the midst of an ever-changing life, when it seems sometimes that we can't control what's happening in our lives, that we need an anchor for our soul. And the only anchor that will hold is Jesus. Now each week, as we've talked about, particularly the last two weeks, this verse from Proverbs has been at the front of our minds. Proverbs twenty-seven, twelve, that tells us the prudent, the wise, those that are sensible, see danger. They look for it. They're always aware that it could be there, and they take refuge. They see something's coming. They prepare for something, and then they do something about it. But the simple keep going and pay the penalty. And so today, what we want to do as we finish up this series is I want to give you one last thing. Now, this isn't, doesn't mean that it's an exhaustive list. This isn't everything you need to pack to be able to head to what's next. But I'll give you one last important thing that you need to pack if you're going to go into what's next and be successful. And to do that, I want to take us back for a moment a little over 18 years ago to a time that was completely different than we know now. Well, maybe sort of different than we know now, right? Some of you are like, 18 years, that's a long time ago. And then you realize that where you were 18 years ago, and it doesn't seem that long ago. Some of you weren't born 18 years ago. That's okay, all right? So the fall of 1999 was a time when the Internet was barely getting into people's homes. Most people didn't have the Internet yet. The most popular online Internet platforms were still things like CompuServe and AOL, So people didn't communicate through email very much at all. People had some email addresses, but you checked it every once in a while. Amazon was a fledgling company that was just getting started. And people used to actually sit and watch TV at the time when it was broadcast. It's a crazy time, I know. In this particular year, in the fall of 1999, a show took the country by storm. It was scheduled to be a one-week, 30-minute-a-night event, then it turned into a three-week, hour-long-a-night event. Ratings went through the roof. 30 million people a night were watching this show, and at the end of the rating cycle, it was number one on three different nights. Captivated the country. Everybody was in and watching it. They were tuning in at night just to see what would happen. The show was hosted by a guy from New York that people knew from late night talk shows and from hosting a daily morning talk show that was just really getting into syndication around the country. He sat in a chair across from somebody else in a chair and he asked them questions that escalated in difficulty until you got to the top. And at the top was a million dollars. The first U.S. game show to ever offer a million dollars, right? What was the show? Who wants to be a millionaire, right? How many of you remember when, like, the, when it came on back then? Not like the syndicated show now, all right? So I'm um, good. Some of y'all look out there. You had to be like kids. That's good to know that you remember that, all right? In case you didn't have to nod so uh, excitedly about being a kid that long ago, all right? And so uh, who wants to be a millionaire? If you remember, it came on and it took the country. It really did take the country by storm. They were supposed to be a w- one-week event, turned into three weeks, turned into they did another episode center in November, did another one in the fall. They did it over and over. And one of the really cool things about it is after that first run especially, they opened opened up the competition to anybody in America that wanted to participate. 
So they gave you a number to call. And if you called the number and answered three questions, so those of you remember the old days of the show, the way you got in the seat was they had ten people that would do a fastest finger question. And when they do the fastest finger, whoever got it fastest and correct got to sit in the chair and go for a million. Well, they... Anybody could call in, do these three fastest finger. You had 10 seconds on each question. If you got them right, you went to the pool that they randomized and then called people back and gave them an opportunity. So somewhere between 10,000 to 20,000 people did that for the November episodes. One of those people was me. Because I always wanted to be on a game show. I can't sing like Adam, and so the voice wasn't even around. It was out of the question, right? But God had given me the ability to remember random, useless trivia facts that had no purpose in life. And so I thought, I'll try it. And so I did. I got the three questions right. After they went from ten to 20,000, they went down to 300. I did not make the 300 cut. So I tried again. Got the three questions right. And we came home from church on a Sunday afternoon. We'd been at the church we were attending down in Texas. Came in and on our answering machine. Y'all remember those things? How many of you remember answering machines? How many of you have no clue what an answering machine looks like? I see those hands, youth. All right. We came in and the light was flashing, right? And so we pushed play and on the other end, calling my voicemail was Regis Philbin. Now, it wasn't really Regis. It was a recording of Regis, who was very excited, all right? But Regis told me I was one of the ones that had been selected to go to the next round. And that meant that I had missed my opportunity at that moment, but he would call back that night from 5 to 6, and if I was there, I'd be able to get it. Somebody said, why don't you give me your cell phone number? Because I had 200 minutes a month on my cell phone. That's all I could use. Anybody remember those days? Amen. That was a family plan, all right? So we stayed around, we get there, and they tell us the details of what's going to happen over the next four days. This was a Sunday. They told us that I would get a call on Tuesday from one of the production assistants. On Wednesday, I would take the next phase of the test on the phone. Had to be a a landline touch-tone phone. And on Thursday, if I made the cut, I would be flown to New York City. So we called on Tuesday, and they made all the details. We'll talk about that in a minute. Wednesday, I call in. I have five fastest finger questions, and I missed one. I got the question about Julia Roberts' movies in the correct chronological order. I missed the U.S. presidents in correct chronological order. Useless facts in there, important facts not, all right? But it, in my defense, it was McKinley and Taft. It wasn't like Reagan and Carter. I would have gotten those, all right? Well, what's interesting is when they called on Tuesday, man, Susan, I got excited. I'm a 23-year-old kid, and I'm excited about this, the opportunity just to hear Regis' voice on your phone, phone mail, a voicemail was kind of cool. But they made us all these preparations we had to get ready. So they told us where we would be staying. It was this really nice hotel in Times Square. They told us the flights we would be on. They told us what we needed to bring. They told me what would happen. They gave me a full list. They asked for things for me. I had to verify that I wasn't an employee or married to an employee or a direct family member of an employee of two or three different production companies and ABC. I had to do all this stuff. But the last thing they said to me was, and we need, if you get a call back on Wednesday night, we need to know at that time a list of five people from you. 
Now, if you remember the game, you got three lifelines, right? So if you had trouble with a question, you could 50-50 it, like cut off half the answers. You could ask the audience, which was not always reliable. And then the third one was you could phone a friend. And so I had to come up with five people that I would call and had to know their phone numbers. Couldn't just say, well, they're in my, my book, you know, they're in my phone. I just tell Siri to call them, right? And so I, 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 I thought about that for two days. My high school English teacher needed a literature person. My high school geography teacher needed a geography person. My college uh, Greek professor who knew classics all around. Uh, my brother who was just brilliantly smart. And then this guy that my mom worked with that knew a bunch of useless stuff too. And I had my list. My phone a friend. If I got in trouble, this is who I'll call. The last thing you need to pack as you're going into next is a group of people that you can depend on to give you wise advice when you get there. To use it in the millionaire terms, you need a group of phone of friends. Now, when life comes at you and next happens, you know this is who I'm calling. And here's what I want to tell you. What I'm going to tell you today is that group of people needs to be people that are going to give you wise, godly advice. Not the latest trendy advice out there. Not what the news would say. Not what a psychiatrist necessarily would say. Although sometimes that may be necessary. I'm talking about somebody that has walked before you where you need to be. And can tell you what God would want you to do. Because here's the truth. Someone else has experienced what you are about to experience. Whatever it is you're going next into in life, someone else has experienced that. The second thing we know is that someone else knows what you don't know. So what you need in life, what you need to pack for the journey ahead is not only obedience now and prayer and an anchor for your soul, but you need to pack people, relationships that will provide you security and answers in the midst of next. If you've got your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to look at a very familiar passage of scripture, but I want to look at it in a slightly different way today. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we're going to read through most of it, just straight through. And then, after that, we're going to give you two points and then we're going to be done. Alright? So 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 12. He says, just to let you know, the Corinthian church he's writing to is completely dysfunctional. They're arguing about all kinds of stuff. I mean, they're having problems determining who's the, the better teacher, who's the better leader. Was it this guy or that guy? Well, I listen to him. I like him. He's a better preacher. No, he's a better preacher. I like him better. Well, I don't like him at all. They're having discussions about that. There, there were problems that arose over who had better spiritual gifts, who was more spiritual, who was farther along with God than the other, and that caused problems. The rich were not getting along with the poor in the congregation. The rich were coming early. They were taking the Lord's Supper. And back then, they used the real stuff when it came, not just grape juice they used the real stuff people that were rich were getting drunk and hoarding the food for the lord's supper before anybody else got there and so the poor people would get there and could not even partake of the lord's supper because it had already been eaten and the rich people were drunk and overfed 
Guy was living with his stepmother openly and the people in the church supported that. It was a mess. In their worship services, from what we can decide, from the way Paul corrects them, they had people that just in the middle of the worship service would stand up and start yelling things, start preaching. Right in the middle of the preacher preaching, somebody else would stand up and start talking. Right in the middle, if they were doing some music, somebody else would stand up and start talking. They had people speaking in languages that could be understood. They had people speaking in languages that couldn't be understood. It tells us in the, in the uh, letter, later in the letter when Paul's writing to them, that in that day and time, women were running around with their hair down, which doesn't seem like a big deal to us, but was one of the most inappropriate appropriate things you could do in public. And so I want you to imagine a worship service where the guys up there talking, trying to lead the worship service, and three people over here are yelling things, and this person's over here yelling things in a different language that nobody can understand, and women are running around with their hair flowing that was completely indecent. It was a mess. And in the midst of that, Paul's going to tell them, get it together. He starts in chapter 12, verse 12. He says, For just as the body is one and has many parts, and all the parts of that body, though many are one body, you get the idea he's telling them you're one, everybody's one, get together, so also is Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all given one spirit to drink. Indeed, the body's not one part, but many. The foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. It is not for the reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body. It is not for that reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? He's telling them, listen, whoever you are, you're important in the body. Whether you have great spiritual gifts that everyone can see, or whether your spiritual gifts are serving in a different way. You are all important in the body. But as it is, God has arranged each one of the parts in the body just as He wanted. And if they were all the same part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. Or again, the hand can't say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that are weaker are indispensable. And those parts of the body that we consider less honorable, we clothe these with greater honor. And our unrespectable parts are treated with greater respect, which our respectable parts do not need. Indeed, God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the less honorable so that there would be no division in the body, but that the members would have the same concern for each other. And then this is where I want to think about for a few moments. So if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. If one suffers, all suffer. If one rejoices, all rejoice. Now, for many of you, you've grown up in church. You've been a part of church. You've been to this church for a while or for a little bit. Some of you know that we've talked about this passage a few times. And we talk about this passage generally, the first, the very first application or the first point we make out of this passage is always similar. And it sometimes is the whole message. And I want you to know it is valid today as well. And that is that what this passage teaches first and foremost is that the church needs you. You. Your individuality, your special things, the way that you can serve, that this church needs you. 
If God has called you to be a part of First Baptist Goodlettsville, there's some of you here that are visiting, that you're guests, and you're still thinking about that, you're still wondering about that. But if you're here and you're a guest and you haven't joined yet, and you know this is where God's called you, or you're here and you're a part of First Baptist Goodlettsville, here's what you need to hear. This church needs you. Your uniqueness, your specialty, your ability to do things that only you can do, that God has placed you here for a reason. And we need you. Everyone is welcome. Everyone has a part to play. And if God brings you here, if this is where God is leading you to be a member of church, then God has a purpose for you being here. But the second thing, and what I really want to focus on today is this. Not only does this church need you, but this is just as important. You need the church. Sometimes when I preach this passage, sometimes when people preach this passage, we miss that point. We don't talk about the fact that not only does the church need you, you need the church. You need a place to be a part where you can plug in and do what God has called you to. And when you suffer, you have a group of people seeking the Lord, going after God that suffer with you. That when you rejoice, that you have a group of people seeking after God, rejoicing with you. A phrase that's almost become cliche because it's been used so much in church circles is you need people to do life together with you that are doing life for God in his direction. It's not just that you need a group of friends that can huddle around, although that's important. You need them for the right reasons and the right motivations. And here's what I want to tell you. I know when I say you need the church, and Paul is acknowledging in his writing to the Corinthians that that is not always easy. In fact, it's really hard. When I was growing up, Mom and I, we, we, Dyersburg was not what you would call the uh, haven of shopping for kids' clothing, okay? You didn't have a lot of stores that sold good clothing around Dyersburg, and so we'd have to travel to Memphis all a lot of times to go shopping. And mom would always take me to two or three stores that were discount stores. Because we couldn't afford the real stuff. Like, I couldn't go shopping at Dillard's or um, any of those high and fancy stores. We had to go to the second stores, and all the racks would have a tag on them that said one or two things. It would say... As is or irregular. And it meant that it was a polo or we didn't even afford polo. Sometimes I got Knights of the Round Table irregulars. All right. May remember those, right? And so you got those irregulars. I, I got the irregulars of the knockoffs sometimes. All right. And uh, or, or they, it would be like a polo or uh, Tommy Hilfiger was a little after my time. But, you know, a nice shirt at that time. Azad was big, you know, with the crocodile there, like something like that. But there'd be a, some problem with it. Now, sometimes you could obviously see the problem. Like there'd be a stain right down the middle of the shirt or a rip in the back. Right. But sometimes and this is when your mom felt like she had found uh gold is when there would be like a tag was a little ripped and everything else was perfect but you got it half off right but you knew when you bought clothing there you couldn't bring it back because you were buying it as is irregular what makes church life and being people that give ourselves completely to opening ourselves up in church life is that everybody in church life is as is 
irregular. We got problems. Amen? Y'all didn't say that strongly enough. You must not think you got problems. We got problems, amen? Every single one of us has got issues. And if we can't come to the reality that we've all got issues, then we have a problem with reality. Turn to the person next to them and say, you are as is. You can say it with a little attitude if you want to. It's a, some of you wives or husbands have been waiting for a long time for that, all right? You took them off the shelf and they are as is, right? Irregular. But here's the thing. Just because it's difficult doesn't mean it's unnecessary. We need each other. I was thinking about it this week, and I thought about an illustration I've used before, but I just love. And it's the illustration from nature of a porcupine. Y'all know what a porcupine is, right? we got a picture there. Isn't that a beautiful animal? Porcupines, people, like, you know, I think about all the movies that have been made, the cute things that have made even weird animals cute, you know, like Babe or uh, Charlotte's Web or any of that. Nobody that I know of has made a cute porcupine movie. Now, somebody's going to come at me with some random movie. Don't now. That's not what I'm saying. In general, people don't think of porcupines as cute, all right? Now, here's the reason. It's because the North American porcupine has, on average, 30,000 quills. And every one of those quills can be a weapon. And when it shoots it into either defending itself or attacking, when it shoots it in there, it lodges into the body of the host. And the host body, the heat inside of it, expands that quill inside of the body and makes it harder to pull out than going in. Now, I've never been, I don't even know what you call it, quilled. I've never been quilled. Is that a word? Never been quilled before, right? But I hear from those that have, it's a painful experience. Here's the problem porcupines have. They don't want to be alone all their lives. Now, usually the way they handle things is they run away or they attack. But there comes moments in every porcupine's life when they decide they need to not spend the rest of their life alone. And they look for a relationship. But the problem is, in the porcupine world, if you ask about a relationship, when the other partner is not ready for a relationship, it can be a painful rejection. So you have to be very careful. And when time comes that you think maybe this will work, you have to be careful because you want to get close without getting hurt. The same dilemma that many of us have on a different level when it comes to spiritual relationships in a church. Because a lot of us have been part of a relationship in church or in the world where we opened ourselves up and we allowed people in and we got hurt. So how do you do that again? You know what I love about the story of the porcupine is that it does actually happen. That porcupines actually do get together. And here's what happens when they finally open themselves up. Is they stand across from whoever it is they have chosen as their partner. And they get on their hind legs and they put their paws together and they walk around. 
in what they call the porcupine dance. Which sounds much sweeter than when you actually see the picture and it looks ridiculous, right? But here's what's interesting about the porcupine dance, all right? Is if you're a porcupine, the only thing you care about in life in general is protecting the underside where the quills are not. Because if you expose that, you could die. But there comes a moment in their life when they have to be willing to expose their underside in order to feel and achieve the relationship. And when it comes to our lives being a part of the body of Christ, sometimes we have to be willing to open ourselves up, even when it's difficult, in order to experience what God intends. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said well over a hundred years ago. The church is faulty, but that is no excuse for you not joining it. If you were the Lord's, nor need your own faults to keep you back. For the church is not an institution for perfect people, but a sanctuary for sinners saved by grace. Who, though they are saved, are sinners still and need all the help they can get from the sympathy and guidance of their fellow believers. Listen, the church needs you. But if you're going to make it through whatever's next in your life, you need The church. Proverbs tells us this over and over again. It tells us in Proverbs 11.14. Without guidance a people will fall. But with many counselors there is deliverance. With help. With people surrounding you giving you godly wise advice. There is deliverance. Some people say well that's alright I've got it all figured out. Or I don't really want people to know that I'm struggling in this area. I'll just keep it to myself. Proverbs Chapter 26, verse 12 reminds us, Do you see a person who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. The idea there is, you think you got it all figured out, you are on a track to destruction. Proverbs 13, 20 tells us, The one who walks with the wise will become wise, but a companion of fools will suffer harm. And so here's the question for you today. And this is really the question I want to get to and drive at and finish with. Do you have the right people in your life for what's next? I'm not asking if you've got people that have been your friends for a while, although they may be the ones. Do you have the right people in your life for what's next? Three kinds of people you need and then we're done. You need someone who will ask tough questions. You don't need a yes person that will tell you everything's great, everything's good. You need someone who will ask you tough spiritual questions. Secondly, you need someone who has nothing to lose. That if they say something true to you and you walk out of their lives, that their lives isn't destroyed. I'm not saying that that's everybody you need. I'm not saying keep everybody at arm's length distance. But I'm saying that there are, you need people in your lives that are able to speak the truth into your life without losing everything. And then lastly, and this is important for many of us in this room. You need someone who is where you want to be. One of the things that I think is tragic about the society in which we live is that we have devalued the importance of relationships with those who are older than us and are generations ahead of us. 
then we need, especially my generation and younger, we need wise counsel from people who have been where we want to be. So here's the question. Do you have the right people in your lives? Do you have someone who will ask you tough questions that doesn't have anything to lose and that is where you want to be? And if you do, will you listen? It's one thing to have them. It's one thing to have them say things. The question is, will you listen? Because the prudent see danger and take refuge. But the simple keep going and pay the penalty. Let's pray together.